MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, September 21st, 2020. Today, the rule of law loses a giant this weekend with the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. House chairs demand a Department of Justice Inspector General investigation into Barr's influence on the Roger Stone sentencing. The physician allegedly performing unnecessary hysterectomies at a private for-profit detention camp in Georgia is not a board-certified OBGYN. Chris Wray breaks with Trump again and confirms Russia is interfering in the election on behalf of Trump and to damage Biden. A lawyer testifies that it was Dana Rohrabacher that offered Assange a Trump pardon to lie about the origins of the DNC and DCCC hack in 2016. The CDC reverses its guidance on testing just one day after Caputo quits as the comms director for Health and Human Services. And emails reveal the efforts to silence the CDC and question its science. Democrats shatter campaign contribution records in the hours after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Inappropriate Mueller report redactions are released in the FOIA case before Judge Reggie Walton. A majority of Americans oppose the seating of a new Supreme Court justice prior to the inauguration. And if Democrat Mark Kelly wins his Senate race in Arizona, he could be seated as early as November 30th per Arizona law. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everyone. Um, It was a Pretty devastating weekend for justice as we mourn the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'll be speaking later in the show with former SCOTUS clerk and former senior director for counterterrorism and deputy legal advisor for the National Security Council, who now serves as the executive director of Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. And that's Joshua Geltzer. He was there during the dissent of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, read from the bench in a rare rebuke of the gutting of the Voter Rights Act. And uh, he has written a piece about Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Washington Post. And I'll also be talking with Democratic candidate for Colorado's 4th District, uh, Ike McCorkle, who's running to unseat Republican incumbent Ken Buck. We all remember him from the Mueller hearings. And as um, as always, we will wrap up with the good news. As you can tell by the intro, extra long intro, we have a lot of headlines to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, lead story today. The physician allegedly performing unnecessary hysterectomies and other procedures and surgeries that effectively sterilize women at uh, this private uh, for-profit detention camp in Georgia is apparently not a board-certified OBGYN. And the Associated Press has has reported that he, his name is Dr. Mahandra Amin, settled a Medicare and Medicaid fraud suit brought by the Department of Justice for over $500,000 in 2013. So he's got a few problems. Uh, AP did some additional digging and found uh, that there has been one hysterectomy performed by him on a detainee that was confused about why she was receiving the surgery. This doctor is an OBGYN practicing for three decades, but not board certified, as Bloomberg News has reported. And the Associated Press was unable so far to find anything illegal about what he has done. But more women are coming forward, and we will follow this story closely for you. And on Friday, the House Judiciary Committee Chairman Nadler, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman Schiff, Oversight and Reform Committee Chairwoman Maloney, 
and House Administration Committee Chairperson Zoe Lofgren called on the Department of Justice Inspector General to open an emergency investigation into whether Barr, U.S. Attorney Durham, and other political appointees are in violation of longstanding department policy and federal law to avoid taking any action, including making public comments on ongoing investigations that could improperly influence the upcoming presidential election. Under longstanding Department of Justice policy, the attorney general is expected to refrain from commenting on an ongoing investigation. Attorney General Barr and U.S. Attorney Durham have made several public comments that could violate this department policy and related guidelines. Attorney General Barr has signaled repeatedly he is likely to allow the Department of Justice to take prosecutorial actions, make public disclosures, and even issue reports before the election in November. Such actions clearly appear to intend to benefit President Trump politically. This is from the letter. I was just reading from the letter. Um, And this was a letter to Inspector General Michael Horowitz. Members continued, few actions would prove more damaging to public confidence in the integrity of the Department of Justice and our democratic process than the perception that federal prosecutorial power can be used to prejudice a pending investigation or influence an upcoming election. As such, we believe it is imperative that this matter be immediately investigated, that you inform our committees of your decision to open any investigation, and that you report the results promptly to our committees. So that's what's going on now. We know already, and we talked about this in uh, at the top in the in the introduction that the they wanted to um, open up the uh, DOJ IG uh, investigation into Barr's interference in the Roger Stone sentencing and the sentencing recommendation. We've talked about that on this show already, but this is a, a new one. They are now saying that Barr and Durham are trying to uh, skirt Department of Justice policy to interfere in the election to benefit Donald Trump. That's really interesting. Uh, And this is an emergency investigation. Now, many of you have speculated that the DOJ IG wasn't long for his job after hearing this news, but I want to remind you, Horowitz has provided what Trump considers to be his only valid argument against the Russia investigation. And that um, the issue, though those are the issues with the Carter Page FISA, remember? And those were outlined by Horowitz in his findings about the origins of the Trump-Russia probe, though Horowitz clearly stated in those findings that the Trump-Russia probe was properly opened on predicate and without political bias, and that the Carter Page FISA issues had nothing to do with why and how the Russia investigation was opened. So Trump can't exactly call Horowitz a liar or fire him without blowing a hole in his one and only bullshit talking point against any part of the Russia investigation in its entirety or the Mueller investigation. So it'll be interesting to see how he responds to this emergency look into uh, whether or not he and Durham are, you know, openly talking about an ongoing investigation in order to influence the election. Because now we have whistleblowers coming out and saying that they were pressured to put out an interim report. And we know that the number two in Durham's office resigned in protest over that pressure to put out an interim report prior to the election before the investigation was concluded. That's the Durham investigation, not the IG investigation. And from the Associated Press, a lawyer for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has told a London court that her client was indirectly offered a win-win deal by President Trump that would see him avoid extradition to the United States if he revealed the source of leaked documents from the Democratic Party before the 2016 election. Uh, Assange did not reveal the source of the leak of the Democratic National Committee emails. 
but he is fighting efforts by the U.S. to extradite him to face an array of charges related to his work at WikiLeaks, but not in with a, you know involvement in the 2016 election. This is back in the 2010 stuff with Chelsea Manning. Jennifer Robinson, who has represented WikiLeaks for a decade, relayed to the court Friday in a written statement that her client had been made an offer at a meeting on August 15, 2017, with former Republican Congressman Dana Rohrabacher and Trump associate Charles Johnson. So there's Dana Rohrabacher showing up again. We covered him in episode 17 of the, the Muller She Wrote podcast, if you want to listen back to that. <laughs> But yeah, so offered him a pardon to lie about who hacked the DNC and DCCC. Now, people are asking, why didn't uh, Assange do that? Well, he hasn't been extradited. Barr might be helping stop that on behalf of Trump because he, you know, did some uh, bribery shit and he's wanted in Chicago. We're supposed to extradite him for that. But um, here we are. He's not been extradited. So seems to be working. But also, he wouldn't be able to prove that Russia didn't hack the DNC and DCCC in 2016. Would he? There's no evidence. He'd have to make shit up. Um, Also, the CDC has reversed its guidance on testing just one day after Caputo quit as the communications director for the Department of Health and Human Services and amid emails coming out that reveal the efforts to silence the CDC and question its science by Caputo, since he's been in there in the last five months, just an assault on the CDC and the science. So one day after he's gone, CDC says, we were kidding about our testing guidelines because they had come out. They were usurped. They were they were not uh, consulted. The scientists were not consulted. And this information did not go through the normal channels, but it was put on their website that... Um, People, asymptomatic people who came in contact with people with COVID didn't need to be tested, did not need to be tested. As soon as Caputo left, bam, they fixed that immediately. Yes, you do. You should be tested if you came in contact with someone who has COVID, even if you are asymptomatic. So that's interesting. And the Department of Justice has released a trove of formerly redacted parts of the Mueller report in the BuzzFeed Jason Leopold and Epic Privacy FOIA case that's before Judge Reggie Walton. And here's some of what we learned. But in, on the whole, it's very clear here that Barr was trying to downplay the seriousness and legitimacy of Russia's attack on our democracy and trying to hide some of the, the very big and important factors uh, about Russia being the bad guy in this situation. First, Barr redacted a statement on page 20 of volume one in the Mueller report, which says the Russians themselves declared that they were at war with the United States. The implication here, of course, is that that declaration of war could make a treason case more feasible. And maybe why Judge Sullivan in the Flynn case had asked if treason had been considered. On page four of volume one, Barr redacted the connection of Prigozhin, the head of the Internet Research Agency, that's the troll farm in Moscow, directly to the Russian army. So Barr allowed him to say he was tied to Putin, but not the Russian army, because that signals war. Another downplay of the declaration of war. And keeping with the image Trump would rather paint of the Internet Research Agency is just a bunch of kids trolling on the Internet, as opposed to a well-funded fucking intelligence machine at war with the United States. 
There, in fact, are multiple redactions describing the complexity and governance structure of the Internet Research Agency, as well as all the entities funding and paying the operatives, including a redaction about how private corporations were used to disguise the military operation as unaffiliated with the Russian state. All part of the cover-up, which was covered up by Barr in a redacted sense. Barr also redacted Russian agents on the ground, on American soil, collecting images for use in propaganda and active measures, targeting indigenous people, Latinx immigrants, and black Americans. Further, Barr redacted additional information about Russian boots on U.S. soil, including Russian intelligence convincing U.S. persons to do things on behalf of Russia, like saluting Brother Eugene in front of the White House. We discussed that when we covered the Mueller report. Also redacted was the extensiveness with which Russian intelligence used Facebook to enhance propaganda, and Barr redacted Russia's use of Twitter to intensify radical groups in America and to influence the media's coverage of of political events. And here's something that was redacted that should draw some attention to what's been happening to me on Twitter recently, particularly with the Ryan Knight account and the bot attack that I experienced when I showed Ryan Knight's side-by-side tweets of his flip his unexplained flip on a dime from supporting the Dems and vote blue no matter who to going Green Party and, you know, fuck Biden and hashtag Bernie to green, which is a Russian hop. But this was the redacted part from the Mueller report. Listen to this. You, this is from the manual, from the Internet Research Agency manual. You should pay special attention to working with public opinion influencers. Concentrate your efforts on communicating with them. Attempt to establish personal contact. Turn to them with a request to support or distribute a relevant topic. Do not pay attention to how it will be done, even if the influencer simply shares your material. It will be an example of your success. Redacting things like this, allowed by Barr, allowed Russia to convert unwitting American social media influencers without us knowing what they were up to. Barr didn't want us to know that it was in the Declaration of War playbook by the well-funded intelligence operation Internet Research Agency that they were making personal attempts for people to reach out to persons, U.S. persons, influencers on social media to get them to share their ideas. Barr also redacted the fact that not only did Russia recruit Americans to do things like dress up as Hillary in a prison outfit at a rally, but Russia paid unwitting Americans to do this shit. Another person, the the person to dress up as Hillary was paid a thousand bucks. Another person was paid a thousand dollars to stage multiple black social justice rallies, as well as they, Russia provided rally materials, signs and megaphones and shirts, buttons. In fact, Barr redacted an entire spreadsheet showing 100 U.S. persons recruited by way of Instagram as assets of war attacking the 2016 election. So Barr redacted all of those items and more under the guise of investigatory situations and law enforcement information or because of harm to an ongoing matter. But we haven't seen those ongoing matters. Again, I think, I think U.S. attorneys, line prosecutors are sitting on those or have filed indictments under seal and are waiting until... They can't be pardoned. Not sure. Uh, Also, President Trump uh, didn't dispute this past Friday that he should consider or could consider removing Chris Wray as the FBI director because Wray gave congressional testimony that Trump didn't like 
on Russian interference in the 2020 election and the threat of Antifa to Americans. Ray told the House Homeland Security Committee on Thursday, Russia is still working to interfere in the U.S. presidential election, trying to denigrate Joe Biden and help Trump. Question about Antifa protesters, Ray said, they were not a group. They're not a structured group. They're an ideology that attracts followers. And some of those adherents are under investigation for possible crimes. Trump was asked outside the White House before departing for a campaign super spreader event whether he would consider removing or firing Ray for his testimony. And Trump said, we're looking at a lot of different things. I don't like his answers yesterday. I'm not sure he liked them either. I'm sure he'll probably agree with me. Antifa is bad, really bad. Trump obviously been using Antifa to paint a dark image of America under Biden, who hasn't been the president for the last three and a half years. Quote, and if you look at it, who's the real problem? The big problem is China. And we can have others, and I'm not excluding anybody, but the big problem is China. And why he doesn't want to say that, that bothers me. That's referring to reports that China was working to boost Biden. Of course, we know Barr and Trump are boosting the Russian propaganda, an active measure that China is the big interferer in our 2020 elections. But we've talked to experts who I know Trump thinks he's smarter than, like Peter Strzok and Frank Figlusi and um, many people we've had on our show. That the trying to equate what you know China has done, which is to support a candidate more one over the other with what Russia is doing is absolutely disingenuous. And they're both participating actively, Barr and Trump, in that op. An FBI spokesman didn't immediately reply for request for comment. So that's interesting. But anyway, later, I'm going to be speaking with former SCOTUS clerk Josh Geltzer about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And just after the break, we will talk with the Democratic candidate running to unseat Republican Ken Buck in Colorado's 4th District. His name is Ike McCorkle. Don't want to miss it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Recently, I was looking for the perfect gift for my friend, and I found PaintYourLife.com, where you can have an original painting by a world-class artist done by hand from a photo. It is such a great idea. I figured it would be super expensive, but it wasn't. I was surprised to find out PaintYourLife.com is totally affordable, and the quality is really amazing. So if you want to give a truly unique gift for those really hard-to-shop-for people, I recommend PaintYourLife.com. You can get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. And you choose from a team of world-class artists, and you work with them until every detail is perfect. And their user-friendly platform lets you order a custom-made hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes. It's so quick and easy. Then you get a hand-painted portrait in about three weeks. You send any picture of yourself, kids, families, pets, special places, or you can combine uh, photos into one painting that makes a perfect birthday, anniversary, or wedding gift. It's meaningful, it's personal, and it can be cherished forever. I love the service. It's so simple and efficient. When the finished product arrived, I was blown away by the quality of this painting. The artist really captured the essence of my friend's cats. And uh, I got, yeah, I got their pod pets painted for her birthday. Um, and I think, you know, when she saw the finished product, there was more than a few tears. So I was very excited. So if you want to make friends cry <laughs> with good stuff, try paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now, for a limited time, you can get 20% off your painting. That is right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word BEANS 
to 64,000. That's Beans, B-E-A-N-S, to 64,000. Again, text Beans to 64,000 for Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to Flip It Blue. I'm And joining me today for the Flip It Blue segment, he is a retired Marine Corps officer and special operator. He's a single father of three kids in Douglas County Public Schools, and he is running to unseat incumbent Republican Ken Buck in Colorado's 4th District. Please welcome Ike McCorkle. Ike, thanks for joining me today. Well, uh, thank you so much. Um, I really have to just say um, how appreciative I am uh, for you guys having me on. Um, It's really the honor, uh, the privilege of my life, you know. I uh, thought it was going to be uh, serving in the Marines, um, but it turns out that uh, having the support of, uh, you know, constituents, um, educated um, uh, lawyers, doctors, and, um, you know, just a- average everyday American uh, citizens, uh, having that support, uh, it means the world to me. And it's really setting us up uh, to be able to, uh, you know, do what you mentioned uh, a minute ago. Uh, when you mentioned my kids, um, which is set our set our kids up for a better future. Mm. And that's really why I'm running. Well, that's really, really incredible. And I have to tell you, I have I have had the, the privilege of interviewing so many candidates for Congress that are single parents. And I think it's so important that we have that representation. Uh, and that's just one of many aspects here. And our listeners, just as a reminder, um, the way that you the way that we are speaking to you today is I put out a tweet saying, tell us who you want to be on our Flip It Blue segment. And we got so many responses from our listeners who wanted us to speak with you because they remember Ken Buck from the Mueller hearings and uh, and the, the Mueller testimony yeah. when Ken Buck had asked, oh, so the president can be indicted when he leaves office? And Mueller was like, yep. And Ken Buck seemed a little surprised with that answer and taken aback. And so our listeners nominated you and they support you. And they really want to flip this seat blue in Colorado's 4th District. Can you tell us a little bit about the 4th District and who lives there? Who are the constituents in the 4th District? Yeah, for sure. I'd love to tell you um, a little bit about um, the constituents out there in in CD4. Um, We're in the middle of a 22-county tour right now. Um, That's why we didn't uh, hop on your show yesterday, uh, because I was out on the road, couldn't get a signal. But um, yeah, the uh, constituents out in uh, Congressional District 4, uh, like I said, it's the eastern 22 counties in Colorado. And uh, so that's largely kind of the uh, high plains. And so uh, largely agrarian, agriculture, uh, farming and ranching is big. Um, some counties have uh, development of oil and gas. And uh, yeah, so the folks out there are just, you know, um, really um, down to earth, uh, blue collar, uh, working class farmers and ranchers. And um, yeah, they've been in a period of tough times. You know, uh, Colorado's in the middle of an 18 year, um, ex- you know, sustained drought. And um, so it's really hurt uh, our dry land farmers and uh, our aquifers are being depleted out there. Um, and so we got a farming and ranching uh, community that's um, in dire straits. Um, uh, not just due to the economic effects of, uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, but due to the uh, tariffs and the trade wars uh, that came before that. 
And really, that's uh, economic policy uh, that Ken Buck supported. <clears throat> and, um, you know, he voted against the farm bill and uh, voted against uh, federal grants for rural uh, water infrastructure improvements. Um, there's just a whole host of things. Uh, voted against uh, the renewal of the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and that, that one just uh, blew my mind. Um, and it's not in keeping, of course, with the best interest of his constituents, but um, there's a reason uh, why he voted against that bill. And there's reasons why, you know, he votes against other bills. But, um, and primarily the reason, you know, Ken votes against bills is because um, he's a paid for politician. And that's, you know, the umbrella problem in Washington right now. And um, it's undue interest, um, exactly what Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, explained to us as he uh, left office. He warned us about the dangerous potentials of uh, the congressional military industrial complex uh, to corrupt the motivation of legislators to serve the will and interest of the people before they serve uh, the interest of their shareholders, uh, the interests of fossil fuel corporations, the arms industries. Um, which tends to engage us in protracted war. But um, what I was explaining is the fiscal corruption of the motivation of the legislature to serve. And that's really what Eisenhower was referring to when he was referring to the congressional military industrial complex. He was referring to the uh, corporation's uh, ability to corrupt uh, legislators' um, motivation to serve. And they're, they're, therefore, they pass legislation that, you know, further enfranchises and enriches their friends, um, their interest groups, their lobbyists. And, um, you know, Ken Buck has taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from, you know, uh, lobbyists um, and from uh, corporate PACs. And, you know, we're a 100% grassroots funded campaign. Uh, we take no corporate PAC money. And, you know, when we get into the U.S. House, we're going to be the voice of rural Coloradans, a working class uh, Coloradans um, who've been left behind for decades. Yeah. And something that's really, really important, uh, especially to rural Coloradans right now, is the environment. Uh, and you are endorsed by the Sierra Club. And can you talk a little bit? I mean, you know, the, the entire West is being ravaged by wildfires right now, and we're getting no response from from the federal government or, or, or Congress. And and that is a, a major, major issue. And I know that you, you know, with your Sierra Club endorsement and, you know, your support of transfer, transferring energy subsidies from fossil fuel industries and government sponsored retraining programs for employees in the fossil fuel industry, which is good for jobs in the economy. You're very focused on the environment. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between you and your opponent on climate climate change? Well, yeah, I mean, they can't be more stark. Um, you know, Buck essentially denies that, um, you know, anthropogenic or human-caused, um, you know, um, climate change um, is real. And so um, you have to acknowledge a problem before you can really address it and start to, to um, institute um, policy and legislation to set conditions to address those problems. And... Um, so, you know, Buck's denial of the existence of um, human-caused uh, global warming or climate change 
um, it makes it impossible, you know, to get uh, legislation even uh, considered that would address uh, the issue. It's hugely important to me. Um, <clears throat> DOD uh, had a white paper in 2003 that uh, identified uh, climate change as, uh, made, as one of the primary national security threats of this century. Um, and every white paper subsequently um, from defense research and analytics, you know, that comes out uh, identifies climate change, identifies sea level rise, identifies, um, you know, that sea level rise forcing the relocation of um, infrastructure and the relocation of um, people who live in the littorals on the coasts. Uh, so climate change is something that we have to consider. Um, right here in Colorado, in CD4, and the droughts that it's causing, and in the fires that it's causing, and the federal response of, is, of course, inadequate, um, just as the response to um, this uh, global pandemic is inadequate and incompetent and inept. And it's tied right back to what we talked about a minute ago. It's tied back to corruption and greed and profiteering and self-servicing government. And Instead of, um, you know, paying for and having a pandemic response office in place, um, we had someone in office who wanted to line their own pockets, who wanted to get rid of every uh, federal service organization that's out there because the federal service organizations uh, cost money and they're um, all about uh, lining their shareholders' pockets, lining their own pockets and enfranchising um, those who have already profited to an extreme degree. Uh, what we need to institute is uh, policy and legislation that reinvests in rural America, that reinvests in the infrastructure, in the roads, in the bridges, in the social safety nets, in the educational institutions that at one point in our history uh, made America's middle class the envy of the world. Uh, it's not anymore. Um, and, of course, last time we um, had those uh, uh, legislative policies in place that, that made our middle class the envy of the world, there was only, you know, the white, um, the upper middle class that really benefited from those, um, <clears throat> from those uh, policies and, and programs and, uh, and federal administrative uh, administrations. So when we reinstitute them and we have a... Uh, Climate Conservation Corps stood up when we stand up the Work Progress Administration of this century, and when we start the federal arts projects of this century, we need to ensure, of course, that um, that opportunity is available to all of our citizens, regardless of their race, ethnicity, uh, orientation, place of origin. Uh, we're all Americans. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's so short-sighted on behalf of the Republicans to miss the giant opportunity um, that presents itself in in the form of being able to uh, you know fix and support our environment, while that almost that simultaneously fixes our job and our economy. It's just an infrastructure. It just blows my mind yeah. that they can't see that. Um, right. And that you can't cut your way out of a deficit, right? <laughs> you know, they're all about, you can't spend in tax, spend in tax. Well, the only way to get return is to uh, 
make an investment. You know, you don't get return without investment. So we need to invest in rural Colorado, invest in Americans in advancing our technology in educating uh, the next generation um, and living up to the America we've always promised ourselves to be. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you, though. Um, And I think you were starting to wrap things up. But, um, you know, we uh, swore to support and defend the Constitution, the rule of law, and uh, a country that was uh, dedicated, invested in a pluralistic existence where everybody was able to live together uh, in peace. And that's because, you know, we treat each other with dignity and respect and, uh, we, and we have empathy for our fellow, uh, for our neighbors. And um, that's what we, we really need to restore is respect and empathy uh, for each other and uh, start making progress where and when we can. And just like you said, uh, that progress, the, the means to get in there, uh, to creating the jobs, the opportunity, the revenue that we need to advance in our technology, it all lies in um, a vast investment in renewable energy systems and solar and wind and geothermal and uh, hydroelectric uh, with solar pump storage. Uh, so, Excess uh, solar power and wind power can be used to pump water to higher elevations, and then it can be dropped back through hydroelectric generators, and you have a big physical battery. You just have to scale all these things appropriately. And we can clean up our air, our land, and our water, live up to our uh, values as Americans, and um, and I think bring people together around our shared values again. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Get everything squared away. <laughs> exactly. Former Navy. So <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for your service. But before I let you go, I've got, a, I've got about a minute left. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for your service. <laughs> number one uh, number one issue um, on the ballot uh, this year from at least the, the feeling that I'm getting is health care, same as in the 2018 cycle. And could you just talk a little bit about your health care platform? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think fundamentally we just have to personalize uh, the discussion a little bit. Uh, like I was talking to a lady down in a Los Animas County that fractured uh, her hip. She's 55, not on Medicare or Medicaid yet, uh, facing, you know, emergency room bills. Excuse me one second. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. I have a uh, paralyzed vocal cord uh, from a combat injury, so it only works for me half the time. But, um, and I've been out uh, on tour, like I mentioned, uh, we've hit about 15 counties in the past week. So I've been given speech after speech. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my, yeah, my healthcare platform is pretty simple. Um, it's based on the fact that, um, I don't think that, um, uh, of this lady who's 55 who fractured her hip, uh, should, and had to go to the ER, uh, should, uh, have to be, um, bankrupt because of her medical bills. And I don't think that her or her daughter and granddaughter, uh, should have to face um, potential eviction because of those bills. Uh, so I am a strong proponent and supporter of a single-payer Medicare for all healthcare system. And um, fundamentally, it's because in some places in America, like rural Colorado, for instance, like La Junta, it's not really profitable for um, corporate healthcare to keep a hospital open there, to pay doctors and nurses and EMTs fair wages, livable wages out in La Junta. That's why that hospital out there closed down. 
um, and a third of the employment in that town, you know, evaporated. Um, and uh, people don't have access to the health care that they need. Uh, the reason is because there's about $100 billion of profits built into our health care system annually. Um, if we were to take all of those uh, profits and invest them where they should be invested in the construction and, and maintenance of uh, rural hospitals and um, the pain of staff for those hospitals and rural communities, um, it would revitalize rural America and it would um, you know, provide our citizens with health care um, at a reduced cost. So this is the, the concept that we have to like convey this simple message that yes, taxes go up just a little bit under a single payer system. However, you have to pay no copays. You know, um, you will not have to uh, pay into the system the money that you are paying into it right now, and and the cost of copays and um, <clears throat> other expenses, um, ER visit, um, you know, fees are so uh, such that they are um, much higher than the modest increase in taxes that you know everyone would have to experience in order to uh, institute a single payer healthcare system. So we're going to reduce costs uh, across the board and provide access to high quality healthcare um, and provide access uh, for our veterans communities, for our rural communities. Uh, for our minority communities, um, because fundamentally healthcare is a human right. Agree, a hundred percent. I can you tell people where they can? Uh, I've got a lot of really, really engaged um, listeners uh, who who want to help. Can you tell people where they can find out more about your campaign and how they can volunteer to help you and maybe contribute to your campaign? Yeah, for sure. And we we have a robust like uh, postcard and um, a remote phone banking uh, programs going on right now to get in touch with all the independents that we need to get in touch with to win the district. The votes are in CD4 to win uh, this time around. And uh, yeah, so we just need your help to do it. So you can go to www.ikeforco.com. That's I-K-E, the number four, C-O.com. Yeah, and you can uh, click, of course, on the donate link and make a generous contribution. And those dollars will help me get into the mailboxes, uh, get on the radio waves, and uh, like I said, get in touch with the independent voters uh, that are out there in CD4 that we need to speak to uh, in order to, um, you know, persuade them that we have a plan, you know, and we do have a plan uh, to install the renewable energy systems of the future, to... um, you know, service the needs of our ranchers and our farmers with uh, rural water infrastructure installations. And, um, yeah, so um, I think that uh, there is a ton of progress uh, that can be made, and uh, we can live up to our values again. And, um, you know, I really look forward uh, to going to Congress uh, to be a voice uh, for America's poor and middle class and America's rural communities who have been uh, abandoned for decades. Uh, so you can go check out all my platform policies on ikeforco.com. And um, I'd love to just uh, get your support. All right. Well, we look forward to sending you to Congress as well. Everybody, again, that's Ike, the number four, co.com, running against incumbent Republican Ken Buck in Colorado's 4th District. Ike McCorkle, thanks for joining me today. Yes, thank you so much, Ann. Have a great day. Stay safe. All right, everybody, we'll be right back with the interview. Stay with us. 
Hey everybody, it's AG. I am trying to stay active and fit and keep my immune system up during the pandemic here, but I often get bored with the same workouts. So I'm constantly looking for different routines to keep me engaged and excited and keep it fresh. And if you're like me, you're looking for a workout that's never boring, always challenging. Uh, you have to check out Fight Camp. Fight Camp is an at-home boxing and bodyweight workout. Um, there's a bunch of them, and they're taught by real fighters, and it's made for all levels from first-time boxers to seasoned fighters. Even kids love it. Uh, the boxing workout is always ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape, and it's honestly one of the most fun ways to get a full-body workout and combine cardio and strength training while developing hand-eye coordination. Fight Camp provides all the gear you need, including gloves, wraps, the best freestanding punching bag on the market, and their unique punch track sensor, their punch tracking sensor. It shows you like real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. The workouts are structured like traditional boxing rounds with interval training of three minutes of high-intensity boxing uh, and body weight training and then one minute of rest. So that's that high-intensity interval. Uh, training that really, really burns calories and fat. And you can access over 400 different workouts for all fitness levels and skills with four new ones every week. You can connect with Fight Camp on Facebook. They have over 4,000 members. You can enter challenges and share successes and hardships and get support from the online community, which I love. You can even access the leaderboard for some healthy competition. Watch yourself reach new milestones and bring that goal-crushing mentality to every part of your life. Fight Camp keeps you engaged, focused, and in the zone. Endless variety, uplifting beats, motivating trainers, and powerful technology combined to create a uniquely satisfying workout. It's great for your mental health, too, to fight a little. Uh, fight Camp offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR. And right now, for a limited time offer, you can try Fight Camp for 30 days with their money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com beans. That's right. Try Fight Camp for 30 days, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your money. Train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results. To try Fight Camp for 30 days, just go to joinfightcamp.com beans. Again, that's joinfightcamp.com beans. Today, for the interview, we're going to speak to former SCOTUS clerk, former senior director for counterterrorism and deputy legal advisor at the National Security Council, who now serves as the executive director of Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, Joshua Geltzer. Josh, welcome back. And thanks so much for the invitation. Josh, you wrote an incredibly moving piece this weekend in The Washington Post um, about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what you wrote, um, you had opened it up um, with, you opened up your, your opinion piece here with um, something that happened on June 25th, 2013. Can you tell us about that day? Absolutely. And, and thank you for the kind words on the piece. It, it really came from from the heart. And I, as, as I heard the sad news about the justice's passing, one of the first memories that came back to me was that day, June 25, 2013. I was towards the end of a clerkship with, with Justice Breyer. And I was sitting in the courtroom as the justices handed down one of the biggest opinions, maybe the biggest opinion of that term, in which a majority, five justice majority, essentially gutted uh, key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, this legendary historic law that had done so much to push forward uh, voting uh, rights in America and thwart discrimination in voting. And I thought it was a dark day for the court. I thought it was a dark day for our democracy. But there was a little bit of light that day, and it was Justice Ginsburg. And it was her delivering from the bench, which is something justices do only when they feel very strongly about their dissent, uh, a version of her opposition, a version of why she thought the majority had gotten the case so wrong. And it resonated with me then. And it resonates, I think, even more powerfully now 
because of the way voting discrimination has worsened in many ways in the seven years uh, since that case was decided. Yeah, and she did. She she ripped into that uh, majority opinion. And because you say here, quote, in her version, the fight against vote suppression after the Civil War had led to the Constitution's Reconstruction Amendments, which ultimately failed to deliver fully on their promise. And that failure spawned into the 60s. And the result was the Voting Rights Act, which barred the most egregious forms of racial discrimination. Um, Yet its work remains unfinished, uh, according to RBG. That's the thing. She, She was grounded in the real world. Yes, there was law here. Yes, there was precedent here. But ultimately, the question in some ways was whether the coverage formula, the the geographic expanse of the preclearance requirement that was a crucial part of the Voting Rights Act, whether that remained at least a rational choice, a reasonable choice for Congress to have made in 2006 when it had most recently reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. And so for, for Justice Ginsburg, that's a story about our actual country and the state of play in it. And so she tells this, I think, beautiful story of, of the history of the fight for voting rights in uh, in this country in her Shelby County dissent. And she talks about Bloody Sunday. She talks about how after – and John Lewis, uh, who, who of course led uh, the initial bloody the, – the initial march from Sel- Selma to Montgomery, which resulted in, in, in Bloody Sunday, he was in the courtroom not – I'm not sure he was there the day the case was handed down, but he was there the day it was argued. I remember seeing him from a distance the day the case was argued. She tells the story about after that happens and then a second march needs to happen, which Martin Luther King Jr. shows up for and helps to lead. She talks about King – saying those those words that are so frequently quoted now about the arc of the moral universe being long but bending toward justice. And she goes one step beyond. She talks about there needing to be a steadfast national commitment to the task to see it to completion. And that's where I think right now, as we are in an election season, as we are seeing campaigns, well, one campaign, frankly, the Trump campaign, fight not just to boost what the public thinks of the candidate, but to stop portions of the public from voting and voting safely in the middle of a pandemic. The idea that this is a national commitment if we're going to get our democracy to a fairer and fuller place rather than something that just gets decided once by Congress, by the court, by anyone, I think that that really resonates today. Yeah. And then you you sort of finish up by talking about our current crisis and how that should remind us of, of Ginsburg's call to arms on that day and and how i mean we've seen this too with the with the biden campaign um uh talking about um moving forward with restoring the voter the voting rights act and calling it the john lewis voting rights act and and i think you're right i think it rings true today more than ever i think it does you know donald trump it seems to me quite nakedly is running against democracy. He he may claim to be running for president, but he's running in some ways against democracy. He has his campaign litigating in multiple states already, and we're only in September, against more inclusive ways, safer ways of people voting. We have him calling into doubt the legitimacy, essentially, of any results that aren't a victory for him. So what should be a contest in the presidential election or, frankly, any other election of whom to vote for instead is becoming a contest about who gets to vote. And that's precisely the the sort of thing Justice Ginsburg worried aloud about in her 
Shelby County dissent. That's precisely the the sort of ill that this historic legislation uh, was was designed to try to, to to deal with. And I think it's very much a challenge that's alive for our, for our country today. And as you say, one that the Biden campaign has embraced as as something that it would make a, a priority in a Biden administration. Yeah, and and this is no doubt um, the, her legacy um, is evident in the response to her passing. A majority um, of of Americans now, new polling shows a majority of Americans are opposed the seating of a new Supreme Court justice prior to the inauguration. And of course, we've heard reports that Democrats have shattered campaign contribution records in the hours uh, after her passing. And, you know, and I think that this has a lot to do with her, what she says, uh, had said uh, that her most fervent wish was to to not be replaced until after the inauguration uh, in January. I think at least a couple of things are are energizing folks in, in, in the way you describe. I mean, one, I think, is just the, the coarseness of how this past weekend played out, that it was within hours, maybe just an hour of this this icon's passing that you already saw the the Senate majority leader talking about how he he planned to ram through a, a, a replacement on the court for her. and and that that coarseness, I think, um, upset people. It certainly upset me. Then you have a sense of the stakes, a sense that as each term has these blockbuster cases, this past term cases about the president's tax, uh, and other financial records about DACA uh, recipients, about reproductive rights, that people on all parts of the political spectrum appreciate the stakes of, of the court. Um, and then you have, of course, the, the, the 2016 memories uh, being fresh of, of Chief Judge Garland of the D.C. Circuit after being nominated to the Supreme Court, not even getting a hearing, uh, and yet uh, a, a totally opposite approach uh, being Threatened, really pledged uh, by the same by the same Republicans in the Senate who, who who didn't allow it back then, and I think all of that and probably more uh, is combining to to motivate people to express their their sorrow, express and honor the legacy of this extraordinary justice and, and lawyer even before that, but also to feel that they need to do their part to be active and to advocate um, politically in this uh, in this moment. Yeah, I agree. Now I have a couple of. Legal questions for you uh, on some proposals that have popped up here in recent days regarding seating a Supreme Court justice, Um, because if if Democrat Mark Kelly in Arizona, who's running against Martha McSally, who, like Mitch McConnell, within an hour of, of the news of Ginsburg's passing, tweeted out that she would vote to seat a new justice. But if Mark Kelly wins that Senate race in Arizona, according to Arizona law, because because Martha McSally was appointed and not elected by Doug Ducey after the passing of John McCain, that Mark Kelly could be seated as early in the Senate as early as November 30th. And that's per this Arizona law. Now, does the Arizona law buck whatever Mitch McConnell might do? Doesn't he does he decide who gets sworn in and when? I don't know how that might play out. Well, he shouldn't. Uh, it, it should be that if, if that's how the state law operates, that the, the federal Congress takes that that person and, and they're seated and they start doing the job that, that they will have been elected to do and indeed to, to represent the people of the state who are entitled to that representation. 
But of course, the, how things should work is not always the way they they work these days. And whether conceivably there might be uh, an attempt to, to either slow that down through procedural mechanisms or, or even somewhat more preposterously by trying to claim that there's some some infirmity in it such that the, the each house's ability to, to be the, the, the judge of whom it shall seat in that house comes into play. At some point, if, if it's raw power and there isn't a commitment to to law or to, to norms, you begin to imagine um, wild scenarios. But uh, I think that the right answer should be that if, if this does indeed go forward and if the, that's the vote of, of uh, the people of the state, you should see someone sitting representing those people in time to become part of this process. Mm. Well, the Republicans in the Senate don't even follow their own norms, as we know what happened with Merrick Garland, um, and and not not just not seating Merrick Garland, but not even having hearings, holding hearings um, in that nomination from from President Obama. But uh, and then of course you know Lindsey Graham saying in 2016, "Go ahead and use my words against me in the future, but uh, we should be able to wait until the election to to seat a judge." Uh, and now going back on that promise, I don't think they they care um, personally. But Pelosi this morning on ABC, on an appearance on ABC, did not rule out impeachment of the president or Bill Barr to stall a Supreme Court vote in the Senate. Uh, and apparently, and I'm not real clear on this, but there are priorities within the Senate when impeachment is happening that they must sort of take that job of impeachment up ahead of, of other things like nominating Supreme Court justices. And Nancy Pelosi says, well, we have a lot of arrows in our quiver and uh, sort of left it at that. And I was wondering if that's constitutionally spelled out or if that's even a, a thing like because, again, Mitch McConnell doesn't even follow his own friggin morals and words. So, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't see him doing this. So it, it, what the Constitution says is that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. But then there are Senate rules right now that, just as you suggest, uh, commit the Senate to, to prioritizing that. And you can see the logic of that. If, if the House is called into question whether the president or, or some other uh, official who's being um, who has been impeached by that point ha- has essentially been accused of a, a high crime or misdemeanor, uh, the idea that that should kind of leapfrog other business uh, on the Senate side of things and that the person should either be vindicated or shall be removed, uh, th- there's a logic to that. That seems like kind of a, an, an emergency, a flashing red light. And frankly, many of us thought it was an emergency for the country as as this president was became the only the third one ever to be impeached by the House, uh, even if he was then acquitted by the Senate. But part of the reason we thought he'd committed a high crime misdemeanor was he had thrust our country into an emergency situation where the chief executive was abusing the, the power of, of his office and the power of the executive branch to skew the upcoming election and boost his own chances. So that, that the idea that you prioritize this makes a certain sense. It's in the Senate rules. And so conceivably, um, those Senate rules could could be changed. But that adds complications. And it in some ways forces even more of an exercise of, of raw power. So, you know, I, I certainly don't know how um, Speaker Pelosi or Democrats in the House or Democrats more broadly in Congress decide to play this. But what I think you see sort of zooming out is a sense that if there's not going to be a commitment to principle that's that's upheld in 2016 and in 2020 and, and thereafter, if instead things become a an exercise of, of raw political power, simply a question of do you have the votes and can the votes get you from A to B if that's where you want to go, 
then all the tools are going to be considered uh, by, by the other folks as well. And I think at, at the at the thirty thousand foot level, that's in some ways what I hear uh, Speaker Pelosi saying. Mm. Agreed, because w- what I see happening, and and this is all speculation. <laughs> I haven't heard anything, um, but you know, Mitch can change the Senate rules when he wants, and he's got a majority to do that. And um, I think that, you know, every once in a while, he'll let sort of uh, senators in purple states vote no, vote no on things like Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski. And and they'll he'll but not enough to, you know, uh, usurp the majority. We know Romney will probably vote no. But um, I think they'll jam this pick through. And I think we might be left with the option of uh, having to flip the Senate and take back the White House, hold the House of Representatives and get rid of the filibuster and expand the court. <laughs> I think that's probably what I'm looking ahead to um, as far as not losing hope that there are still more options going forward. Well, and as, as, as your listeners think about this and as the country thinks about this, uh, there are so many issues on which uh, the Supreme Court rules that, that, that it's hard to kind of make it concrete. But I think the best one right now is health care, that right now – as our country goes through, stumbles through under Trump's leadership or, or lack thereof, uh, a, a horrific um, pandemic, that first of all, the Trump administration as an executive branch is on the brink of arguing orally what it's already argued in its, its briefs, that the very popular uh, Affordable Care Act should be essentially eradicated, uh, including the protection for, for those with pre-existing conditions that Americans overwhelmingly support. Um, but that not only is that what the executive branch is doing, but now that same executive branch um, is trying to push through uh, a nominee who could at least be the difference maker, who could be the vote that then turns around and embraces that argument and and eradicates what is a source of, of critical health care at a critical time for many, many Americans. And so if if the idea of the court and of cases can ever get abstract, uh, I think it's helpful to, to turn to this moment to the healthcare crisis our country faces, and to this healthcare law that has gone to the court now multiple times, but is going with a particularly wild set of arguments being made about it by the Trump administration. And that is what's at stake as we think about who might end up filling this this slot on the court. And that comes up in the October term arguments. Is that correct? Yeah, arguments are just uh, just after uh, election day, uh, I believe, but they'll be in, as you say, in the term that begins uh, with the first Monday in October. Yeah, that's a pretty short timeline to seat a Supreme Court justice. That's right. That's right. But that that's, you know, that's the I, I gather the, the the push here by the Trump administration is to to move quickly in all respects, uh, to move quickly to to fill the seat, lest the things change and in, in the, the balance change in the Senate and, and the, the White House. Um, but also because there are critical cases this term, just as there have been the last few terms. And. Not every case, of course, is 5-4, but some of them are, and some of the really big ones are. And so some of the consequences of, of which way that fifth vote goes can be enormous. Yeah, and and that brings us back to the, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act that you that you brought up in your Washington Post story. So I encourage everyone to read that. It's really, really well done, and, and I'm, I'm so glad that you uh, submitted that piece. Thank you so much. Thanks for the chance to talk about it. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, everybody. Thanks so much, uh, Joshua Geltzer. We will talk again soon. I look forward to it. Everybody stay with us right after this. We'll have the good news for you. So stick around. 
Hey everybody, this Helping of the Podcast is brought to you by Helix Sleep. As many of you know, for the past four years or so, I've had trouble sleeping. <laughs> I often lay awake, stare at the ceiling, tossing and turning, wondering what's up with the BS at the White House. Um, trying to count sheep, it's not working. At first I thought I was losing sleep because of what's going on in Washington. But it turned out the other factor keeping me awake was my trash mattress. Garbage, garbage mattress. Thank goodness for Helix Sleep. Helix understands you're unique. They customize a mattress to fit you in the way you sleep best. Helix Sleep created a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to do online, super easy, and they use your answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. If you like mattress, uh, if you like a mattress that's soft or firm, I like them kind of firm, medium. If you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, I'm a side sleeper and I do sleep really hot. And so they ask me all these questions and they match me to the perfect mattress. For me, it was the Helix Midnight. And because you know, of all the preferences I put in the quiz. But you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was actually awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 and 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine and Jordan Coburn and Mandy Reeder and Joelle and me. So just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, especially if you're sleeping on a Trump-branded mattress. You need to change that out. Anyway, you'll get the best sleep of your life. They'll send you a customized mattress after you take their quiz. It's amazing. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it for 100 nights, risk-free. They'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. And they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. All right. We have a lot of good news today. We also have some confessions and some corrections. You guys submitted everything. So thank you very much. If you want to submit your good news stories, political or personal, or if you want to submit a correction to something I have said incorrectly or in any, you know, in a show, or if you want to send a quarantine confession, you can do all that at dailybeanspod.com and click contact. And uh, as patrons and premium subscribers, we know you rarely miss an episode, but now your newsletter is going to be in the same place you find each episode. So we're skipping your inbox. We're going right to your premium feed. So look for newsletter in your ad-free feed on Mondays. That's going to come out on Mondays and go to the show's description. You'll see the newsletter there. So we got some good news stories. I want to open this up. This is not listener submitted. This is just something that came across my desk. And we have found out that in an effort to increase youth voter turnout this November, all Foot Locker owned stores in the United States will become temporary voter registration sites starting on September 22nd. The company uh, announced this on Friday. And the registration site includes Kids Foot Locker, Lady Foot Locker, Champs Sports and Foot Action locations. Each of the company's more than 2,000 stores will host a kiosk with a special website where visitors can check their voter status, register to vote, or sign up for election reminders. Uh, Foot Locker says the initiative is geared to the more than 4 million young Americans who become eligible to cast ballots this year. That's incredible. So thanks to Foot Locker for making that, um, making that happen. Now, uh, we've got some uh, listener-submitted correction here from... Uh, let's see, from Bonnie and Caitlin and Kelly. This is the same correction from all three. And this is from the episode Ghosts of Indictments Past. 
Um, and they say, I'm slowly adding you to my daily necessities. A radiologist is an MD with a specialty in radiology, of course, not epidemiology. So Dr. Atlas knows about taking medically useful pictures, which is more medicine than Trump and most of his minions know. Radiologists caught a lot of flack before this guy, and he's not helping matters <laughs> like the new format. Thanks for being the first to tell me the most important things. Thank you very much for letting me know that. Radiologists are MDs, uh, but they are not epidemiologists, so... Thank you for that correction to everyone who wrote in about that. Uh, another correction from Karen, longtime listener, living up to my name. <laughs> so I can't believe AG made this mistake, not once but repeatedly, and no one has pointed it out. Maybe it's just my penchant for pedantic semantics. You know, on the adverts for Helix mattresses, often uh, AG often says, you've heard from me, Jordan, Mandy, and Joelle, but we haven't. I don't think anyway. Joel has never said anything. We would love to hear from Joel. I think it would be lovely to have Mandy and Joel on as guests. Also, have you ever asked Maddo to guest? I'm missing Mandy and Jordan, but very much loving Amy and the newest edition, Dana. She's amazing. She had big boots to fill, and she's managing. All right, well, thank you very much. Yes, uh, Joel told me uh, personally, and when Mandy was on, who is Joel's wife, Mandy said, Joel said. So it was kind of a by proxy hearsay type situation since they sleep in the same bed. Um, and they use the same Helix mattress. So, but, you know, point well taken. I shall bring them on as guests or at least ask them, nay, beg them to come on and say hello. So thank you for that, Karen. Uh, next up, uh, Alec has written in pronouns he, him. Uh, and Alec says, I'm wallowing in grief this weekend over Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. I know I'm not alone, counting her as one of my biggest heroes. Just days ago, I was shocked to learn that my old college newspaper's current editor-in-chief, let's call her Edith, intended to vote for Joe Jorgensen. That inspired me to write a Twitter thread on why she is a shit candidate uh, on her own merits, not just because she's a libertarian. I hoped I could get through to Edith, especially since she's BIPOC and with tenacity. That reminds me of when I was in her shoes three years ago. Unfortunately, the thread was almost entirely ignored by everyone. I doubt Edith even saw it or took the time to read it. But after RBG's passing, I tweeted, Hey there, Libertarian voters. We really need all of you to vote blue this time. Edith liked it within minutes and then posted a picture of herself next to a painting depicting all four women of the Supreme Court. Hopefully, Biden just got another voter in the state of Louisiana. Thanks for sending that, Alec. Um, I really appreciate that. And um, it's been a tough weekend. So I, I do thank you uh, for writing in on that. Next up from Greg Robin. Side note, my first name is unique and not a typo. My pronouns, he, his, or they, their. Do I have good news, Greg Robin says. Well, Notorious RBG has passed and I'm scared. I know what is about to happen with Moscow Mitch and Trumpster Fire and, f and filling RBG's considerable shoes. That is not good news. A champion of good law and justice has died. The more bad news, my condolences to her family, friends, and millions of admirers. In her honor, I have to do something, and I have to do it now. I cannot leave this to others. I have to do something to fight against this repressive regime. I'm taking action, and that, that is the news, which I hope is good news. Today... Collaboration has failed. Civility has failed. We must create a new way forward. And to do that, we have to remove those who are enabling the tyrant in chief. Whereas I am a liberal and donate to causes and candidates who reflect my beliefs, it has normally been modest. But today, in honor of the dearly departed Justice Ruth, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and to her fight, I just gave, I think, the largest donation I've ever made, $500 to Amy McGrath running against Mitch McConnell and $500 to Jamie Harrison running against Lindsey Graham. 
It will take me about a year to pay that back to my PayPal account, but I feel I must put the future of our country before my freedom from debt, as many people did during our revolution. For if I do not risk something now, all may be lost soon. I love what you and your crew inspire. I am a patron and a loyal listener. Tomorrow we have more work to do. Let's do it together and make some noise. God, thank you so much, Greg Robin. Um, uh, as many of our patrons know, we were on our live stream happy hour uh, when the news came down. And my immediate inclination was to end the live stream. Um, but my mom called me at that point and she said, honey, you got work to do. I love you. Get to work. And I noticed more and more people popping up in our live stream. We went from 100 to 200 to 300 within minutes of getting the news and people saying, I just needed to be here. I needed to be among my people. I needed to be among um, like-minded people. And I, I, I needed community and support. And so we pressed on. We brought on Dana Goldberg. We had some very emotional moments. We knew that Decades from now, we would all remember where we were when we heard the news. And my mom was right. We have work to do. And we'll get through it together. Next up, we have a confession from Sunny Grapefruit. Pronouns she and her. I have to start by saying I love listening to your pod so much. It has really been a great source of information and comfort during these crazy orange menace dominated times. I used to be one of those people that would grumble when politics came up in conversation because I just didn't want to think about it. Growing up in Texas, you voted red and you moved on. Knowing your vote didn't matter much either way. Now every vote matters. And thanks to you ladies, I'm mentally armed to shoot down disinformation from all of the Fox News lovers that surround me. Now for my confession, I like to watch my neighbors out my front window. <laughs> I am married to the least nosy man on the planet. Uh, in the before times, he would put up with my antics of doing things like looking up our neighbors' names and public records on the internet instead of just talking to them like a normal person. We've both been extremely fortunate to have jobs that allow us to work from home during the quarantine. Our home offices, uh, our home office looks out onto a residential street and affords me the perfect view for all the people watching. Mischievous grin. Um, now, in the early days of quarantine, it was like a parade. As all the people, the, you know, while she's people watching, all the people who weren't allowed to go anywhere were forced to stretch their legs around the neighborhood. I'd remark to the husband about the rule breaking, the rule breaker walking her dog off leash, the couple choosing to walk in the street instead of on the perfectly serviceable sidewalk, uh, even about random neighbors innocently mowing their lawns. My husband would chuckle, but accused me of being like Mrs. Kravitz from Bewitched. He's probably not wrong. <laughs> we got to get you a caftan. Uh, one day, the neighbor across the street, let's call him Fred, was out mowing. I noticed him mowing over the branches that had fallen out of his tree. I got the biggest kick out of him doing something I thought was so weird. Who mows the branches? Even after mowing said branches, he still had to drag the now leafless branches out to his trash can. Once I'd seen Fred mowing branches, I really started paying closer attention any time he was outside. It can't be a coincidence that on the day A.G. had a story about QAnon on the beans, Fred was out mowing his lawn in a black t-shirt with a large Q on it. I turned to my husband with eyes wide and mouth hanging open. Could our neighbor be part of QAnon? I quickly Googled to see if QAnon had a logo. And of course, just a Q. A couple days later, Fred was out talking to some uh, lawn workers while wearing another Q shirt. This time with an American flag and a bald eagle in the background. I told my husband, it's like I have ESPN or something. <laughs> nice. 
my boobs can tell when it's raining. Good Mean Girls reference. Now, anytime I hear a lawnmower going, I ask my husband if Fred's out mowing his branches, and I crack myself up. All I can say is you just never know who you're living next door to. I must add that I'm beyond delighted that Amy is part of the beans now. I confess that She-Ra is still on the list of things I need to watch. I first saw Amy on Sophia and Young and Hungry. She was so fun and adorable. My husband and I both super enjoyed that show. Keep up the awesome work. You ladies are amazing. Thank you so, so much. Um, next up from Shelby, pronouns she, her. I recently got back into graphic design, uh, reawakening. I've been asking my friends for pictures of their fur babies, and I'm slowly relearning some techniques, but I'm making progress. I'm making little postcards of their babies and plan on sending them as little surprise packages to my friends. Fun and therapeutic? Absolutely. Creepy? Maybe, but I hope not. <laughs> also, I remembered a joke that frequented Muller, she wrote. I'm very a very visual person and daydream while listening to y'all. Here's an illustration of Squid Pro Crow for you to enjoy, share, do with as you please. It's nowhere near my skill level a few years ago, but it's something I keep thinking about randomly, so I thought I would share. Your motto of we laugh or else we would cry has honestly kept me going and keeps me sane. I cry anyway, but mostly with joy or shared empathy. I love you all. Thanks for helping us get through this. Oh, and here's the picture. This is so beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to make a shirt. I hope you don't mind. Uh, and we'll share this picture in our newsletter, which again, look for in your Patreon feed, not in your email. Too many people, it was going to junk and it was, you weren't, you weren't getting it. So we're changing that. Next up from AM, Anonymous Millionaire and Hooten Justice Daddy. Oh, hello, Anonymous Millionaire Justice Daddy. Confession, I'm about to shamelessly plug Diaper Need Awareness Week. To fellow good-hearted benevolent folks, you, and momentarily distract them, I mean you, from the election and the necessary work of saving us from all authoritarian wannabe strongmen. Bear with me, and let's walk and chew gum. Good news. Diaper banking is working to meet diaper need. Uh, it's food banking, but for diapers and basic baby needs. Duh, a good cause. What's more? It is run by the same totally dope folks that are bringing us the Alliance for Period Supplies. This week is Diaper Need Awareness Week. Check it out online in your local community. It's easy. Internet search for words you just heard. You'll find it. You are pretty well smart if you've been listening to this podcast. It should be a nonpartisan issue. Just take a look at who's leading the charge to protect literally the most vulnerable people alive. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, California 13th, and Rosa DeLauro, uh, Connecticut's third, are champions of this cause. How about sending them some notes of thanks this week? By the way, AG and Bean's team, thanks again, and thank you so much for all the good you do, deeply, wholeheartedly. Thank you. Even Donald J. Trump should care about this. There's evidence to suggest he has diaper needs now and uh, in his advanced age. Not a burn, for real. Diaper rash is painful, and it's just the tip of the iceberg of problems caused by not having a clean diaper when one needs one. There is no shame in the need for a clean diaper, but there is shame in not recognizing the need, having empathy, uh, and using your power to help others who suffer. Just saying, please support diaper banking. Well, thank you, anonymous millionaire and Hooten Justice Daddy. Um, let me know uh, how the uh, age send AG to law school fund is going, and uh, we will talk soon. Everybody, those are the confessions, the good news, and of course, some corrections. And I appreciate everyone sending in their submissions uh, today. Please go to dailybeanspod.com and click contact if you want to send in a good news a story. And again, political or personal. Um, you can also use that link to send us any feedback on the show or any information you want us to know. We really appreciate it. And um, everybody, especially after this weekend, please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Take care of your mental health and take care of the planet. 
I'm your host, A.G., and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.